Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, where we aim to arm you with non-obvious points of view on how to improve diversity and inclusion in your company. I'm your host, Petar Vyoshevich. Today, our guest is Rory Sutherland. Rory is the vice chairman of Ogilvy Mather, one of the largest advertising companies in the world. He's also co-founded their behavioral sciences practice, which is applying behavioral insights to advertising. In addition to that, he also has time to write the Spectator's Wikiman column and speak at conferences around the world. Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, Rory. What we'll do now is have a conversation, or mostly I'll just ask a couple of questions and just let you kind of loose. Fabulous. Fabulous. Thank you. Perfect. So, um... Uh, recently, the UK government, of course, had legislation passed that companies need to present gender pay gap data. What are your thoughts on that as an intervention to actually help around the issue of pay gap disparities? It's complicated, I think I have to say, which is that uh, if you remember, it was mandated that um, public limited companies should publish the salaries of their most senior staff. And it was intended to curb excessive executive pay. It, in fact, had the opposite effect because everybody compared upwards rather than downwards. And it's a difficult one because now I've got to be very cautious here because I'm conscious that in delivering a podcast on diversity and inclusion, I'm playing effectively the kind of podcast equivalent of Russian roulette, whereas a white male, I'm only one wrong pronoun away from career suicide. But um, where it's complicated... And I mean genuinely complicated, is one, we've got to ask the question as an advertising agency, uh, what population are we supposed to be representative of? Now, is that in, in ethnic terms, is that the population of London or the population of the UK? Because they're two very, very different things. Secondly, you've got to accept the fact that your senior management's gender balance does not reflect hiring decisions taken last year it reflects hiring decisions taken in 1994. Now, when I joined Ogilvy uh, in 1988, for whatever reason, first of all, the the gender balance of of further education was different to now. But secondly, for whatever reason, the ratio of both graduate programs were probably two and a half to one male to female. Now, you would reasonably expect, all other things being equal, that the gender balance of senior management would be colored by the gender balance of the people you hired 20 years ago. And it's not entirely reasonable. You also have to look at applications. So in the case of Microsoft, with the famous case to do with particularly the the gender imbalance among coders, the imbalance was actually not clearly entirely a product of Microsoft's own hiring, because people applying for coding jobs in um, Google, in fact, was, wasn't it? This is with James Damore. People applying for such jobs were applying in the ratio of 10 to 1 male to female. So the problem in that case lay not so much with Google and how it was hiring people or promoting them. It lay somewhere further back in the relative proportions of men and women who perhaps 7, 10, 12 years before had decided to take a computer science degree. So we've got to be be a bit careful here. The other thing we've got to be a bit careful about is taking a very white view of what diversity means. So one colleague of mine in a large media organisation was very amused because a colleague of his was very proud of his diversity figures because the office was more than 50% female, and of the females in particular, something like 30 to 40 percent of them were Indian. Some of them were Indian by nationality, uh, others were Indian by by ancestry. And this very proud man mentioned this to another friend of his, also of Indian ancestry, who burst out laughing. And he said, what's so funny? He said, well, to you, this is a very diverse group of people. To me as an Indian, every single one of those people of Indian ancestry essentially comes from the Brahmin caste. So an Indian would look at your idea of diversity and find it hysterically funny because it actually mirrors caste prejudice dating back two or 3,000 years. So there's a really important point here, which is I think that diversity is one of those things that should best be pursued obliquely 
not directly. In other words, it's outcome, but it isn't a target. You want to see it, it's a health indicator, you know, like a low resting heart rate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's something you should pursue directly. The best way to pursue a low resting heart rate is to perform a lot of exercise, which is actually to have a high non-resting heart rate. And I think in the same way, I think complex questions of this kind, first of all, are muddied by bad statistics, secondly, by bad metrics and bad definitions, and thirdly, by the natural and perfectly understandable urge to, to pursue them by direct intervention or indeed incentives rather than by oblique means. So then that, again, leads me to another current topic. Um, I hope I pronounced it correctly, but Diageo recently announced that they would be taking agency DNI plans into account while assessing pitches. What might some of the intended and unintended consequences of that direct approach be for, for agencies? It's very sensible for Diageo to do such a thing because the market for spirits if anything, actually, until the recent gin rig revolution here, your typical white guy was an under-consumer of premium spirits. So the fact that actually um, uh, Diageo should care very much about the uh, diversity in all kinds of ways of the people hired by its agencies makes very good sense. And um, I wouldn't criticise it at all. The only thing I would say is that one, you have to accept that part of the skill of being an advertising person is to imagine yourself in other people's shoes. You know, it, it, I'm a bit uncomfortable with the idea that, uh, you know, you can only understand someone if you yourself are that person. Sometimes, by the way, the opposite is true. You find it easier to understand a culture as an outsider than as an insider. Now, I'll give you two interesting examples of that. There is a very large value, if we're, if we're flip to flip quickly, to the subject of what we might call cognitive diversity. People who are on the spectrum, the Asperger's autism spectrum, can be very, very good social scientists precisely because they have to work out what is instinctive to everybody else. You know, sometimes someone can be a better observer of a culture if they don't actually come completely from within it because you notice the differences in a way that someone brought up in that culture will simply assume it's universal. So there's a, there's a value to viewing things from an oblique angle as, as well as viewing them from a direct angle. And so we've got to be a bit careful here before we get into sort of grotesque oversimplification. What I'm not disagreeing with, with, with at all, and I make this absolutely clear, is that if you employ a diverse group of people, you can count it as a success and as a competitive advantage. Just as if you have a low resting heart rate, you can count yourself reasonably healthy. What I don't accept is that necessarily the way to actually pursue that end is to pursue it with quotas or with absolutely direct intervention or positive discrimination. There are a whole variety of reasons why I favor an oblique approach over a direct one. One of which being the kind of Aristotelian moral question, which is the way I avoid being racist is by doing non-racist things naturally and by instinct and because it is in my nature to do so. If you impose conditions on me, you aren't actually turning me into, you know, into a good human being. You're merely relying on the law to do what natural human instinct should be doing anyway. I'm going to make one other caveat about diversity, and this comes not from me, but from a very good psychologist who works in the area of uh, headhunting and executive search. Uh, there is one area where you don't want diversity at all, where you want absolutely grinding uniformity and conformity, and that's in the subject of values. Generally, what makes a high-functioning organization is that it's diverse in thinking style, it's diverse in background, it's diverse in culture, it's diverse in taste, but in values, it's as homogeneous as you can get. This is why many mergers fail, by the way. It isn't because actually there's something totally inappropriate about the gender mix or the ethnic mix from the two companies that are merging. It's because there's a cultural disconnect or a cultural disparity between the two. And I'm not prepared to sacrifice um, my belief in the importance of values on the altar of some particular um, quota uh, or some particular kind of target. 
Now, you know, Ogilvy, interestingly, at its best, is exactly what you'd hope for. In other words, more and more of the people running offices around the world are uh, local. We have a huge policy of moving people around the world. We also have uh, a policy, I think, of hiring broadly, as laid down by David Ogilvy, who was a very, very early exponent of hiring women and promoting them before it became fashionable. His argument was always that he saw how much happier his mother was when she started work. Now, bear in mind, he was speaking at a time of the kind of early madmen era, where his views were by no means universal. And I think when I joined Ogilvy, some parts of the world, if two Ogilvy people in the same office married, one of them would have to leave. I think that was the case, not in the UK, but I think it was the case in certain parts of the Ogilvy world still. That was at one stage considered normal. I don't think it is now. When my friend joined the Foreign Office, I think in the 1980s, I'm not sure that women who married didn't have to leave. There was something very peculiar about that, certainly. Uh, what's really important there is that the values come first. The second thing is that diversity should be a natural byproduct of what you're trying to do, given, however, the fact that you don't compromise on the question of values. And so cognitive diversity is an interesting question as well, which is that, you know, generally, I think the, um, the advertising and marketing industry over um, rates the value of extroversion. And I think actually what you have is a large number of people in the ad industry who are natural introverts and jolly good thing too. But they sometimes find the obsessive socialization of the marketing services world uh, you know, both exhausting and uh, I, I'm a weird mixture of the two. I'm happy doing periods of high intensity socialization. I'm totally happy speaking on stage. But the Cannes Advertising Festival, which is basically people yakking bollocks to each other for about 17 hours a day, I can take a day and a half of it, I have to go home. Or I have to sit in my hotel room in my underpants watching the Discovery Channel for two days just to recover. This is another vital point. The ad industry is beating itself up over the question of diversity. What you have to do, this is why I don't support the treatment of James Damore at all. I think Google disgraced itself there. One of the things I have to have in an advertising agency as part of the culture is a culture where you can suggest or hypothesize or say anything you like short of actual hate without the fear of retribution. Now, the reason an ad agency has to have that culture of freedom of speech is that one time in 10, the stupid suggestion actually turns out to be right. It's not impossible that there are aggregate gender differences in preference that affect the kind of jobs that in aggregate men and women choose to do. Nobody seems to be bothered by the fact that scaffolders are disproportionately male or that dustbin men are disproportionately male. You know, you could argue it's a case of physical strength in that case, but you could equally argue that, you know, maybe guys disproportionately like both scaffolding and being actuaries, or perhaps you could frame it another way, they dislike it less than women do. And we know there are certain mental conditions and mental states which actually manifest themselves differently uh, at, at a different rate according to gender. So expecting complete equality across the board in all forms of career doesn't strike me as a realistic expectation. The way that you've talked about, you know, the issue of diversity and inclusion and, and the broad areas of examples that you give, you know, as they say, in, advertising is too important to just be left to the marketing department or marketing is too important to just be left to the marketing department. Has diversity and inclusion now reached a point where it's, you know, too important to just be left to the HR department? In fairness, I mean, I would say that a good person responsible for hiring was always interested in this anyway. Uh, you know, and that applies to social background, it applies to cognitive style. Generally, by the way, when you're hiring, values aside, it pays to find people with complementary skills. And the people with complementary skills may not look like you or talk like you. And so there's a perfectly intelligent reason why you should pursue um, diversity. One very simple suggestion I have from choice architecture is to hire people in groups. Another simple suggestion I have from choice architecture is I don't favor, say, all women shortlists. 
But I do favour that you could veto any shortlist from having only one person from any particular group whose representation you wanted to increase. And now let me explain this. I think what James Damore proposed might explain 5%, it might explain 50% of what you might call uh, uh, you know, unrepresentative, apparently unrepresentative figures. We've got to be very, very careful about this because statistically you can get things unbelievably wrong. Uh, there's a very famous uh, thing in statistics called Simpson's Paradox, which shows that how you present particular statistics. So, for example, you will see that there's a higher rejection rate of women uh, applying to university currently than there might be of men. The reason for that is that when you aggregate the figures for people applying to all forms of academic discipline, there are more women applying to do English and modern languages where there is a higher rejection rate. Basically, the people who apply to do particle physics at university pretty much know whether they're up to getting into that university or not. And so there's a far greater rate of self-selection in application for particle physicists than there would be for historians, people doing English, people doing uh, modern languages, say. And so if you look at the statistics in the wrong way, you'll go, this is unbelievable. You know, we're, we're accepting a higher percentage of male applicants than we are of female applicants. Once you correct for faculty, however, you can actually see that the bias may actually be operating in the other direction. So we've got to be really, really careful because people, not many people know shit about statistics. And when you're wrong about, if you're wrong about geometry, a good guess will still get you 20% within the ballpark. If you're wrong about statistics, you can be an order of magnitude wrong, you can be diametrically wrong, and still be really confident in what you're talking about. The other thing I think you need to look at is the direction of travel and the speed of change. So if you look at something which is essentially a complex system and how it changes, the pace of change will be a sigmoid curve, it won't be linear. I would predict confidently that in the field in which I work, which is marketing services, the majority of all employees at all levels in pretty much all disciplines, when I say pretty much, I'm giving myself a get-at clause there, uh, will be majority female in about 20 to 25 years' time. So it raises another important question, which is, the reason I'm conservative is not because I, I'm opposed to change, it's because I think there's a natural pace of change just as there's a natural pace of adoption of new technologies, there's a natural pace in which institutions change. And that pace isn't linear, and it certainly isn't immediate. And so if I'm occasionally sounding, sort of voicing a sceptical voice, it's not because I don't believe in the, in the dream or I'm trying to piss on someone's parade. It's simply because I believe there's a, there is a natural timescale at which you can achieve this painlessly and fairly, with a degree of patience. And that can be quite rapid. If you look at, say, the acceptance of same-sex marriage, that in, in some developed countries so far, that has gone from an absolutely niche topic to mainstream acceptance in pretty much a decade. Other things, you know, uh, people quitting smoking, uh, not drinking and driving, uh, the adoption of certain technologies, e.g. video conferencing. Those things don't happen immediately, firstly, and secondly, they don't happen linearly. And if you don't appreciate that, you can get things very badly wrong. I have a really weird thing I raised the other day, for example, which is there are two mistakes you can make the change. You can give up too soon, or you can be too impatient. I'm going to wear theory that if Google still sold and had persevered with Google Glass, I would have bought a pair by now. They gave up too soon. You know, the habit of walking around or sitting in an office wearing kind of you know, high-tech plain specs, that's going to take time. You know, the Sony Walkman, uh, when I first saw people using Sony Walkmans, that was really, really weird. I saw my first jogger in Wales in the early 1970s and assumed he was being pursued by the police. Because that was the only reason in 1971 Wales the only reason you'd run in public was be because you're being chased by something. So there's a natural pace, and obviously there are going to be time constraints here, which is that if you're still hiring mostly male um, graduates, then patently your problem isn't going to solve itself. 
And bear, bear in mind, there's a whole industry now who are paid to see everything through the lens of gender, sexual preference, and um, ethnic origin. And it has become an industry, and we have to actually say, look, you know, these people, just as I have financial incentives for exaggerating the importance of marketing and advertising, or at least boosting it, not necessarily exaggerating it, they have an incentive to boost the importance of what their particular gig is. This isn't something which you could change overnight without actually the cure being worse than the disease. And I, I, I simply think that, you know, if you, if you understand phase transitions and all those things, maybe it could be very rapid at some levels. It could be very, very rapid in recruitment. Maybe the place we need to intervene most anyway isn't in our recruitment, although, again, hire people in groups. You'll automatically choose much more diversity than if you hire people one at a time. Secondly, ask yourself lots of questions about why there are imbalances and be open to what the answers might be. It might be that nobody who does maths at university thinks of applying to a marketing agency, for example. That's a problem because you're losing out on people with a particular cognitive style. It might be that what you think is gender bias or ethnic bias is status quo bias. So is it then a case of moving the conversation even to a earlier stage in terms of age that you talk to teenagers who are doing their, you know, high school or, or you know, G, GCSEs and saying, look, you know, these are the things that you can kind of expect and then maybe they make better informed decisions as to what they study and what industries they may feel appropriately work for them? You need 15 theories here to test. You don't need one. I'm not disputing for a second that prejudice plays a part here. I'd be an absolute idiot if I, if, if I said anything different. Um, it may play less of a part than it did. Maybe it will always play a part to some extent. Not all that prejudice is prejudice of white males against ethnic minority, uh, transgender, or, um, you know, uh, or, or, or non-heteronormative females. Women can be perfectly capable of being prejudiced against other women or against men as well, for example. It's not impossible for ethnic minorities to actually exhibit uh, prejudice against ethnic minorities slightly similar to their own. Okay? I think we have seen that on the world stage. The idea that this is all whitey white guy's fault is pretty fucking insulting. That's the first point. You might argue, if you're being really Darwinian about it, that actually... Uh, certain men in certain roles have an extraordinary preference for hiring people of the opposite gender. You might also argue that uh, one of the prejudices that we don't investigate uh, is, uh, and this is particularly true in marketing services, is an extraordinarily strong preference for attractive people. I don't really notice it because I'm used to, you know, I'm used to working in an office that, you know, full of marketing services people. If you get friends who come in who are actuaries, they think they've wandered into a modeling agency. Now, you know, we're never addressing that. Someone was suggesting the other day that attractive people should be taxed more highly to, to level down their advantages. So this is a really complex problem, okay? There are lots and lots of factors at play. That's the first one. There are lots of explanations, some of which may be short-term, and we should obviously tackle the short-term ones, uh, as far as you can do it within, you know, while preserving basic human liberties. Some of the problems may actually never go away. If you look at countries like Denmark and, and, and the Scandinavians, you actually get greater gender segregation around job than you do in places like the UK. And the reason is that as countries get richer and they get more developed, your job becomes more about self-fulfillment than it becomes about simply the necessity to earn a crust. And as people exercise more preference, you actually see divergence, not convergence, in the kind of jobs that different genders like to do. Now, in marketing services, by the way, my prediction that this would be majority female is based on exactly that observation, which is I think that in many ways, uh, women are, are possibly better at doing what we do. They possibly enjoy, now, I, I'm, by the way, I'm chucking out hypotheses. What annoys me about the, the extremists in this view is that when you chuck out a hypothesis that it isn't basically the fault of, you know, like whitey McWhite guy, okay, they, they interpret that as contradiction. It isn't contradiction, it's an attempt to explain the whole. You know, and social phenomena aren't like physical phenomena. They can't be explained by one or two things. 
huge prejudice may actually manifest itself just in terms of what people study at sixth form, because once it becomes known that the maths and physics faculty, uh, you know, tend to be sort of 70, 30 male, female, then does that further exacerbate itself by the 30% of, of women now becoming more reluctant to do maths? One of the things that a guy called Thomas Schelling, I think he was, showed is that very small differences in initial preference can actually manifest themselves in, in quite extreme ways. It's called the chessboard experiment, if you're interested. Now, life's kind of complicated, okay? I've got a daughter who's actually very, very good at STEM subjects. I have done everything I can to persuade her to do STEM in the sixth form. But ironically, considering what I do, she wants to do philosophy and psychology. Should I stop her? You know, I mean, she could be a doctor, she could be a physicist, she could be a chemist, she could be a biologist. I've certainly done nothing to discourage her from that. And yet, I have to respect her basic preference, what she wants to do. Now, what I think is weird here is that there are lots and lots of reasons which may be seemingly trivial at first, some of them may be actually back in the midst of time, simply who did what subject in 1996 will to some extent determine what the gender mix is of an actuarial firm in 2018. It may be that, you know, there are differences in that, you know, you will find that actuaries and people who are obsessed with what I call artificial certainty, men seem to have this particular vice, you know, in terms of things like finance, where they actually love totally bogus numerical models simply for the certainty it gives them even when those models are useless you might argue that the skill set you need in marketing is absolutely the opposite of that but it's completely wrong to uh, to do this business of assuming that because there is something that seems like a statistical anomaly that there can only be one explanation i mean i mean you know i've spent 30 years as a marketer Generally, there are lots of reasons why people do and don't do things. Some of them are economic reasons, some of them are cultural reasons, some of them are just to do with what you might call social norms and conventions. There are reasons all over the place. So I'm going to slightly put you on the spot here and ask for some you know, practical thoughts on, on, on this issue because you mentioned something very profound. You know, there's so many possible reasons why these issues exist, yet having a discussion around that is often a, a hot-button topic. It's often taken to personal issues, and what can people do to facilitate this type of almost scientific environment within their own companies whereby you, you can say everything and you're not going to be penalized so that you can actually get to the right outcome because in the end feeling right and actually getting a right result are two different things uh, yes and, and actually feeling right or feeling virtuous and being able to signal um i mean the vast majority of really dangerous jobs are still done by men uh, men earn more than women, but it seems that women control, according to some statistics, women control 70 to 80 percent of household consumption, either completely or partially. Now, if you're being very mischievous, which I'm not, of course, you would say, hold on, how is that a bad deal? Okay. Now, you know, if I had a cat, okay, the cat would control, you know, a, a part of household consumption, but it would earn nothing at all. But if that were the other way around, Okay, this is a really interesting question, right? If basically women earn more than men, and yet men control 80% of household consumption, that would be viewed as scandalous, wouldn't it? If blokes just sort of hang around the place, basically, you know, sort of, this is, by the way, what happens in matrilinear societies uh, on the borders of, um, uh, I think it's borders of India and China, where essentially the guys just hang around all day smoking and playing backgammon and are occasionally required to have some sex. Now, how that's a bad thing, I'm not really sure. And the interesting question, of course, that evolutionary scientists are asking is what on earth justifies the existence of these men? I mean, you'd only need about five of them to do the impregnation job. Uh, why aren't they kicked out in the way that bees get rid of drones or whatever? I don't know. One of the interesting things to look at is that this is, to some extent, an unpleasantly middle-class preoccupation. 
Um, and I, I think a, a part of it is driven by the need for middle-class people who earn large middle-class salaries, but who have left-wing opinions to enjoy moral legitimacy for the money they earn. I think a large part of higher education is about that. It's that, uh, well, obviously, because I've got this fancy down qualification, I should earn a high salary, whereas people who aren't qualified should earn a lower salary. And I think the educational establishment, if you look at it from a Marxist standpoint, is essentially a great big machine that essentially provides moral justification for class differences and economic inequality. And I wonder if some of this is the same thing. So does it then, does a bear market then when every company needs to be a lot more rational, perhaps is a better environment to create more diversity because you're going to maybe look to hire whoever is, like you said, you know, the cheap runner who has nothing to lose instead of now when you're in kind of a bull market and you have time and, and pleasure to pontificate, it's a little bit more we can do here okay first of all we can make sure that no one who is capable of doing a job here and who wishes to have a job here which is an important qualification that no one who would like to work here encounters obstacles in terms of promotion or recruitment that are on spurious grounds of any kind and that could be racial prejudice it could be class prejudice so anybody who has an inherent talent in this area who would be worthwhile to employ in this company should have no obstacle to promotion or recruitment uh, on uh, grounds which aren't relevant to their ability to do their job. And that is absolutely a given. So just in case you think God the Sutherland's being a sort of crusty old fart here, I, I regard that as axiomatic. And secondly, that we are not using heuristics to make employment decisions that are essentially not necessarily racist, sexist, or anything else, but which are simply um, uh, have deleterious effects towards particular groups or particular cognitive types, where it is not relevant to your ability to do the job. Okay, So, you know, we only hire on ability is basically the, the single sentence thing. That's the first stage thing you have to do within your own organization in as far as you have power to change things. The second order level of action is very simple, which is why is it that certain people don't apply to us? Is it because they don't even know that the advertising industry exists, for example? Is it because we have, and I worry about this, a summer school, which is much easier to attend if you live in London than it is if you live in Sheffield. You know, are we recruiting in ways which are disproportionately advantageous to certain geographies? Now, patently, the job of any employer is to find talent that's undervalued. And with this end, it's patently in your interests to understand what great people your competitors aren't hiring that you could. And there's an element, I think, of self-correction in this. Nonetheless, I think we probably use heuristic rules and instinctive devices to hire that do act to create prejudice. Some of that prejudice may be ethnic or gender related or whatever. However, some of it may be a byproduct of tools we use simply because, for example, it might be easier to spot people who share your values if you're from a very similar background. It might be harder to read someone's values if they're more different to you. And yet, if you regard actually values as non-negotiable, as I do in a workplace, how could you find ways of, of finding people who share your values without having some sort of skew as a byproduct of using some mental mechanism? Very interesting piece in the Harvard Business Review shows that if you have one of a minority group in a hiring pool, their chance of getting hired is much, much lower. If you have two, their odds of being hired more or less return to what you'd expect statistically. So it might be incumbent on us to change the choice architecture of decision making to overcome what may be not gender bias or racial bias, it may just be status quo bias. It may be that I've only got one job to hire, I can't afford to make a mistake. 
you know, this has to be absolutely no. I don't want to be known as the person who hired the person who didn't work out. I'm going to hire the person with the fewest number of distinctive attributes possible. That's the Heathrow effect, which we mentioned. Book your boss on Heathrow, on a flight from Heathrow. If anything goes wrong, he doesn't shout at you because you did the normal expected thing. Book your boss on a flight from London City. It might be better, but if anything goes wrong, you've now taken a decision which is noticeably non-standard, and therefore the likelihood that the blame makes its way back to you is much greater because your decision is a visible one, not an invisible one. Now, that cowardly bias in business may be responsible for far more prejudice, actually, even among people who have uh, uh, you know, relatively low levels of ethnic or gender prejudice in their day-to-day -day lives. The simple urge to make a non-eccentric hiring decision when you hire people one at a time may lead to a kind of crippling conformity. So our job is to look at the choice architecture of how we hire it, to look at the, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that we should, you know, we should, as far as possible, avoid having any group from which you choose being uh, having only one person of a particular uh, um, a group, because that does seem to be there does seem to be evidence that that has problems. Then we need to go outside and go. If you're the computer industry, you need to go. Why did women historically not apply to or, or join courses on certain forms of computing? And if you look at the case study from Harvey Mudd College in the United States, they renamed courses. And instead of blah, 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 which sounded you know, totally unappealing to me as a creative person, never mind uh, a female audience, they renamed it Creative Problem Solving with Python. And they had two or three other interventions. One very clear intervention was taking all the female people on the course to a female IT conference to show that they weren't outliers. Um, after Harvey Mudd College performed these three entirely libertarian interventions, I would argue, the ratio completely changed. None of those things were actually prejudiced. They were just bad marketing. You know, it's, it's worth making a distinction. You know, um, you know, as marketing people, we have to say, you know, well, we are uniquely well qualified to ask questions like, what is off-putting for my daughter about taking a STEM course at university, for instance. Now, what it is, is she really, really enjoys philosophy. Well, I'm not going to override that. I've done what I can. But, um, I, you know, I respect her, her individual preferences. Just as a good marketer should, you know, not, not everybody buys everything. I think it's worth making the distinction between what is prejudice and what is actually bad choice architecture, bad um, decision design, and bad marketing. And what is undoubtedly true is there are certain industries um, which maybe have marketed themselves very badly to certain groups. There are also, I think, industries which I suspect, I don't think you're ever going to find 50-50 gender split in nursing, and I don't think you're going to find 50-50 gender split in um, uh, you know, actuarial statistics. You're always going to see some kind of imbalance in terms of preferences between genders for particular jobs. Apart from anything else, if there are certain jobs like scaffolding, which possibly only men can do physically. Absolutely no reason a woman shouldn't be a scaffolder. You should make sure that women who want to become scaffolders should be able to do so without prejudice, but do not expect that to manifest itself. I mean, you know nothing about biology or complex systems if you expect regularity and linearity. You're a moron, okay? Only people who've been to university and have been taught a load of bollocks about there's a right answer to this, there's a wrong answer to this, it's all down to this, it's, it's entirely the fault of why. You know, this is not, and this is the strange thing is that educated people seem disproportionately likely to actually manifest this kind of moronic belief system. It shows they have absolutely zero clue about, I mean, if, if you see any kind of linearity or regularity in a kind of organic evolved system, it actually doesn't mean that the system is working right. It means there's something wrong. You mentioned once that almost because the term behavioral economics was invented, the thinking behind it became more accepted by CEOs. Yeah, absolutely, because it had the word economics in it. It was a rebranding of social psychology and anthropology a bit and evolutionary psychology. But in a way that because it had the word economics in it, 
it got access to a C-suite in a way that, um, and also a degree of kind of social acceptance in government in a way that psychology uh, simply couldn't have achieved. Again, this is perhaps a, a somewhat linear question, but it sounds like the conversation that HR is having about certain elements and not having about other elements perhaps requires a, a, a term like behavioral economics to make some of these ideas slightly more acceptable. Is there ever, have you ever been briefed as this as a creative agency to say, okay, how do we, how do we introduce these conversations in a way that actually allows for more adoption? Well, look, I, I, I make myself really clear here. If I ever heard that a colleague of mine had failed to hire someone because of prejudice, uh, that's, uh, that's painted a firing offence and shouldn't be. There's a very, very far cry from that to being unable to suggest other interventions. Okay, So what, what actually the extremist movement here is doing is it's actually making the problem more difficult to solve than it really is because it's only happy to attribute the problem to one cause. So what it's effectively saying is it's the equivalent of, of, of only using one medium in marketing. You know, it's saying, no, no, we can only use television to solve this problem. That makes the problem more difficult to solve because sometimes the problem requires a mixture of different approaches, all oriented in the same direction, but interventions in different places and based on different problems. And firing James Damore is wrong because, first of all, uh, it's a totally, in fact, his opinion would be shared by one of the scientists I most respect uh, in psychology, who's herself female. It also strikes me as a bit iffy, which is that there seems to be much more uh, excitement about relative salaries at the BBC than relative salaries in kind of working class jobs. Uh, there seems to be something there going on which strikes me as uh, uh, as pretty nasty, or, or at least pretty self-interested. There's an element to me which goes, I don't know what's going on here, because the whole reason I work in this business is that I, I like to look at a problem or something that could be changed or something that needs to change but isn't, the adoption of video conferencing, as we mentioned earlier, okay? And I like to hear five different people from different backgrounds surmising different reasons why people have failed to adopt the use of video conferencing despite obvious economic and rational and lifestyle benefits in fact to its adoption and sometimes the theories are going to seem deeply dissonant or weird i mean one theory is that basically people want to look busy the idea that actually you know they're working from home fills them with immense amount of guilt, not because they're accomplishing any less, even if they're accomplishing a great deal more, but simply because people who are paranoid about their jobs turn up at the office to demonstrate their commitment to their employer, even though that wastes the employer's time and reduces the efficacy of your work quite markedly. Now, the fact that that happens in businesses where it's difficult to prove your use hour by hour perhaps shouldn't surprise us. But in the same way, if we look at these various issues, um, you know, I need, before I'm confident enough to actually say, uh, let, you know, how do we improve this problem? I need to know that we've looked at every dog that didn't bark in the night, we've looked at every possible explanation of the problem, and we have some mode of testing which of them has the greatest effect. And also whether actually, of course, more than, if you really want to solve the problem, you know, maybe three or four different interventions are required rather than just one. I also want to ask the question, by the way, is the cure worse than the disease? Because people who see something only through the lens of gender equality and fairness will be prepared to pay a disproportionately high price for achieving the thing that obsesses them. Now, before you get really angry about me saying that is, there is a way of achieving this, I think, which imposes relatively low costs, which doesn't make every male feel there's no point in me exerting myself for the next eight years because nine out of 10 promotions, nine out of 10 non-executive directorships are gonna to go to females. But that's hardly a beneficial outcome, is it? The large group of your employees are fundamentally demotivated because they feel that every hiring decision is now based on the improving your gender statistics. And how is that a success? And just to be clear about the cure being worse than the disease, as a kind of behavioral scientist, I occasionally ask the question, 
what would you want the punishment to be for someone who's caught drinking and driving? And the standard punishment in the UK is you're banned from driving for a year. That seems pretty fair, seems pretty sensible, doesn't it? No, I think it's a terrible thing. The fact that you're caught drinking and driving now probably means you have a borderline drink problem. If you give someone with a borderline drink problem a year where they are un they're unable to drive, what is the most likely outcome? The most likely outcome is they become a raging alcoholic. Because if you never have to drive anywhere, okay, you're driven around for a year, you're taking taxis for a year, you can't lift off your friends for a year. The one upside of that driving ban is that every time you go out to the pub, you get as pissed as you like because you ain't driving home. Maybe the ban should be you're banned for alternate months, for two years. But what I'm saying is there's a very natural urge of people who wish to punish things and uh, people who feel they're the victims of injustice to regard redress and fairness without any kind of cost-benefit analysis because the only thing they care about is fairness. But there are lots of other things you have to care about in, in, in life, which is you know the reasonable efficient the reasonably efficient functioning of an organization might require that you're slightly more patient at seeking a redress in this matter than would be ideally the case. And so the single issue fanatic, who's a kind of character who's bedeviled early left-wing politics, to a point where, by the way, people, people we had a, a pride march in London. It was hijacked by eight TERFs who were trans-exclusionary reactionary feminists who want the L removed from LGBT because for, okay, not totally uninteresting reasons, they regard the transgender thing as somehow deeply inimical to uh, their own particular vision of lesbianism. I think one of the claims is that people who are lesbians are being socially pressurized into actually changing their gender identity. They ended up marching at the front and they sort of lay, lay down across the thing. Now, one of the problems that's potential here is that if you actually view diversity as an outcome and as, an, as a health indicator, but you don't make it a direct target, I think you can actually solve the problem. If you actually start making targets for this, it's going to become a living fucking nightmare. You've already got the problem in the United States where Asian Americans claim they're underrepresented at universities. I think the university should be free to hire an interesting group of 400, 500 people without being exclusively meritocratic and fair. One of the problems that arises here is that the need to be fair means that you must impose the same criteria on anybody, on everybody. Now, once you impose the same criteria on everybody, you are patently adopting a policy of low diversity because you're essentially getting a group of people who are all very, very high when scored on five particular metrics. Do I think it's okay for someone to actually say at a Cambridge college, um, well, to be absolutely honest, you're not quite good enough a mathematician to get into the, the college, but you're, you're UK under 19 junior backgammon champion. And so we find you cognitively interesting. And therefore we'd like to have you around is that okay? My view is yes, it is okay. What we're doing at Ogilvy is we're deliberately diversifying the channels of entry with things like the pipe, which deliberately recruit blind without reference to educational qualifications. And we're using it in particular to find creative people, but also we're actually doing it in order to create different forms of selection metric to prevent the problem where if you start applying the same criteria to everybody, you end up with everybody being the same. Like a wild card at Wimbledon. You should have wild cards. Because if you don't have wild cards, you don't know if whether your current recruitment is actually any good. Because an awful lot of recruitment goes, gosh, our graduates are very clever and very successful. Yes, that's because they're graduates. Well, how do you know? The second thing that bothers me about graduate recruitment is that nobody looks at the it's rather like medical testing. If you do medical tests, you need to know the false negative and the false positive. Now, undoubtedly, anybody who gets a first in mathematics is pretty good at mathematics, right? But equally, as an employer, anybody who gets a first in history is patently pretty lucid and fairly intelligent. Okay, so university is a good way of finding intelligent people. It's a proxy. 
But what are the false negatives? Well, let me give you a parallel, okay? If you're really good at chess, you're probably pretty intelligent. Yeah, you know, I mean, there might be total, like, thicko chess players, but my impression is that people who are really good at chess tend to be pretty intelligent. Is it fair to say the opposite, however, that people who aren't good at chess are thick? Now, uh, since you called Vujosevic, you know, therefore, uh, presumably from a Slavic culture, you may say, yeah, people who are bad at chess are thick. I don't know if you go, I don't know if, if, if Slavic uh, chess obsession is that strong. Patently, there are a lot of really bright people outside your part of the world who are really clever and are really shit at chess. And I think there are people who are really, really clever who are really shit at abstract academic problem solving. And we haven't looked at the false negatives in the expansion of further education. We haven't sufficiently addressed the question of false negatives. I know a lot of people in advertising, you know, they're brilliant people in advertising who start at the post room. Why do they not signal that brilliance through getting a fancy 2-1 degree from somewhere? There's a very large chunk of the population who, if you give them a concrete problem to solve, they're brilliant. If you give them an abstract problem to solve, they're just not interested. I don't know whether I'm shit at chess because I'm shit at it or whether I'm shit at it because it just doesn't interest me. You know, my brother's an astrophysicist. He's shit at chess as well. I don't know. Is it because you lack the particular spatial, whatchamacallit, uh, or is it because you're just, you know, you just can't get interested enough to care, and if you don't care, you're never going to get that good? So, you know, I worry about all manner of questions of recruitment, but what I, what I emphatically will say is that your diversity is a... Uh, is, is an indicator, and you should keep an eye on it. I don't think you should publish it, because if you publish it, you'll force people to, uh, as the phrase goes, you'll force people to violate Goodhart's law, which is any metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric. So you start to um, optimize yeah. for that that you incentivize for. Exactly. Now, emphatically, it's a really good sign. I would be alarmed if the ethnicity of Ogilvy in 20 years' time were the same as it were today. And I shall be watching those figures intently. However, that does not mean if the figures do not perfectly match some other arbitrary set of figures. And by the way, which set of figures, by the way? So the New York population or the US population? What do you start, I mean, you know, do, do you also start discriminating against people heavily? Do, we, do you go, we've already got one Jewish version in planning, so our quota's all up? What else going on? You know, I mean, seriously, you know, if you actually start targeting this stuff as opposed to measuring it, there's a very, very big difference. You can emphatically change the measure, but it's one of those things you can only do obliquely. I think this is the perfect way to end the podcast because I want to be conscious of your time as well. Unless you have some more time, because I have a ton of questions. I've got about 10 more minutes, I think. Okay, then I'll just ask one final, final question. Daniel Kahneman recently gave a talk in which he alludes to his new book that he's writing about signal and noise, and in which he talks about decision-making moving from, like you said, heuristics to algorithmic decision-making, because algorithmic decision-making just, you know, on average will produce better results. And I know you're, you're somebody who follows technology very closely as well. Artificial intelligence, it's being hailed as the end-all and be-all for all mankind's problems. And in particular in HR as well, it's seen as a potential game-changer. What are your thoughts on, on artificial intelligence in like for these types of issues and, and the, the rate at which it will actually have an effect given adoption behaviors? When, when you say that algorithmic decision-making, and that, that also can be according to, uh, you can also have kind of human algorithmic decision-making. Absolutely, absolutely. The question you've got to ask is a big one, which is, is one, is it producing better results over the long term as well as the short term? So initially, I'm sure the policy, when adopted by Goldman Sachs, of only employing people with a 2-1 or above, was generally a good data point to use. On average, given that they get 10 times as many applicants as they do, as they have jobs, okay? As a filter, in the early days, that was probably reasonable up to a point, except there's a loss of cognitive diversity there. I mean, uh, you know, I would argue that actually people who get thirds often have slight, or, or indeed university dropouts, may have slightly interesting entrepreneurial skills that you're completely missing out on. 
and that you're also missing out on non-conformists. Does it work better at the individual level or does it work better at the collective level because they're not the same? That's the first point. Secondly, uh, there's a very important question to ask. What happens over time, which is that if suddenly everybody at university, so it's not just Goldman Sachs anymore, every graduate employer is going, nah, 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 we want to see you when or above. You know, we don't care if you've been actually, you know, under 18 cryptic crossword champion or whatever, or above. that means that you essentially are by definition wasting about a third of the talent that comes out of UK universities. And you're also turning people's university time into a hideous uh, red in tooth and claw battle between students who would benefit more by just hanging out with each other and smoking a bit. So you turn university into this hideous kind of careerist um, dystopian nightmare because everybody knows if they're not in the in the top kind of two quartiles or something, you know, it's career suicide. I met somebody who had a lower second in maths from Cambridge who couldn't get an interview. Female as well, interestingly. And I said, hold on a second, right? The number of problems in this office which a two-one in maths from Cambridge could solve, but a two-two in maths couldn't. First of all, I hardly ever come across them. Secondly, uh, if, if I did come across one, you've got a tutor in maths, so you presumably you know no two people have got a first in maths. You could just bring them up and ask, right? Okay. This is hardly a fucking deal breaker for hiring you here. She was a really, really interesting candidate as well. So I mean, it's just totally dumb. So one of the things Kahneman isn't looking for is that people gain the system. The other thing that Kahneman is looking at there is that you maybe need to maintain the moral legitimacy of the system by being able to at least advance a reason why some people were hired and some people weren't, which is why you may want to interview them. Now, the moral legitimacy of the system may be actually slightly bogus, in that the real reason isn't the reason you give people. But how acceptable is a world where, I'm not even comfortable with speed cameras, just to be clear about this. I'm not comfortable with the fact that I can be found guilty of a motoring offense and fined by a machine that doesn't understand the fucking context in which I was driving at 45 miles an hour. So now, let, let me be absolutely candid here. I've been done by speed cameras five times, okay? Well, one of them was frankly a bit anal because it was two o'clock in the morning on an empty road. If you've ever driven down a dual carriageway at two o'clock in the morning when it's completely empty and you're driving at 40, it's actually scary because you're convinced you're gonna get hit from behind. It feels so slow. But that's not the one I'm complaining about. It was at least legitimate. In one occasion, I actually accelerated past the speed camera to avoid a drunk driver in the car in front. He was basically swerving from side to side or possibly having an argument with someone in the passenger seat. But they were going very, very slowly but swaying from side to side. So I waited for the sway over to the left, wellied it. Now, a human policeman would have arrested them. He wouldn't have arrested me. But the machine is context-free. And... Having a system where I can be fined, where there is no means whatsoever of my stating my reason for what happened, or for arguing that actually the rule doesn't apply in my case, because strikes me as really, really dubious. The fact that you actually say, I, we do not know why we have been rejected for this job, but our algorithm has decided. Now, here, okay, here's a case in point, okay? An algorithm that was looking for employees in the United States found one very, very strong correlation between their application and how good they were at their job. Nothing to do with any of the questions they actually answered on the questionnaire. The thing that correlated most exactly between their application and the employability was whether they employed online using Chrome or Firefox, which meant they tended to make good employees, or whether they use Safari or Explorer, the Office standard browser, which meant they tend to make worse employment. Now, I could explain that on psychological grounds, that actually changing your browser is kind of upfront effort for, it shows a capacity for delayed gratification. It's a bit of a pain at first, it pays off over time. It may show a certain degree of technological sophistication, which the others lack. However, they refuse to use that criterion because they said it's unfair. Because what happens if you if you actually email someone and say, I'm terribly sorry, you employed, you, you were. Well, first of all, if people ever know that's the criterion, the only people are gonna game the system by downloading really obscure browsers like Opera or something, uh, you know, on a Linux device. 
Secondly, what happens if the person says, yeah, but I actually, I don't own a computer. I had to apply, I had to apply for this job at my local public library, and all it's got is six shit PCs with, uh, with Explorer on board. Or I actually applied at my dad's house, and I wasn't going to dick up my 87-year-old dad by installing a new browser. That's a perfectly reasonable defense, which should then overwrite what the algorithm tells you to do. What also happens when algorithms become significantly racist, okay? Now, there is almost certainly a correlation between uh, your involvement in organized crime in the United States and your surname ending in a vowel. Now, I, I mean, you're called Vujosevich, and I'm called Sutherland. We're both off the hook here. I don't really care if the algorithm's going, going oh, that vowel, you know, okay. Certain forms of machine learning will start actually using that information in ways which are really, really dodgy. And so I think the way to do it is for humans to look at algorithms and to use them and to use them to complement their own decision-making. Should you, however, either override your own instincts completely, one, or two, essentially create an environment where disobeying the algorithm is a much riskier career decision than obeying it? which is quite likely to happen in a lot of institutions, the Heathrow effect, which I mentioned. Um, there's quite a lot we've got to be really worried about here. The other thing is, does the algorithm measure for values? Because one bad apple, I've seen this happen at Ogilvy. If you've got a reasonably senior person, and they're painfully successful because they're quite senior, but there's basically a values mismatch. It's a collective systemic catastrophe. And so, you know, we have to be a little bit careful here, which is what the hell is it measuring as success? Is it measuring how successful an individual is in his own career? Or is it measuring actually the extent to which they add value, not only to them directly, but in their presence in a team? You know, what the hell are you measuring here? Because you're probably measuring something that's actually quite easy to measure. And a lot of things that are really important in, in business don't have a numerical value attached. Which is kind of funny because you've, in a roundabout way, allowed me the perfect ending because the model kind of that you are suggesting is what we in chess call advanced chess, whereby both human players use artificial Stand intelligence. How about that, actually? Okay, so I go, my God, this guy called Vydrosovich. My chess analogy is going to be a total piece of shit. So in chess, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's essentially, you're allowed to use um, uh, software, but you occasionally countermand it. And it actually produces superior results in terms of it's, quality of play. Chess is a closed system, whereas real life isn't. You know, there are rules to chess. And in real life, of course, you can rewrite the rules. You know, in some cases, you know, there's an element to me which quite likes Donald Trump. And the reason I like him is that rational, totally rational politicians basically they have a ship of state and they equip it with really, really sophisticated navigation and meteorological software. Now, the one thing Trump can do, even though I don't like him, okay, the thing that Trump can do, which Hillary Clinton could never do, and which to some extent Barack Obama failed to do, is change the weather. And the danger with very rational people is they tend to become fixated on a particular model of how the world works and can only see the means of changing the world through tweaks and adjustments to that mental model. And a Trump, a real estate, interestingly, someone who's been in real estate, my father was in real estate, bear in mind, although he studied as a lawyer. Um, there's something actually quite creative and interesting about the real estate mind, which is you look at a fading, decaying area of Brooklyn, and you actually ask the question, okay, this is a total shithole, but what could it be? Now, if you simply buy one building in that thing, it's going to be a nice building in a shit area. Maybe you develop it with you know, a few other things and you actually take over a street and you force two of the outlets to be artisan coffee shops, suddenly you've changed the weather. And so there's something interesting about the non-conventionally rational mind, which is that if we confine ourselves only to solving problems through the deployment of rationality, we are actually limiting our problem-solving set. Unseen potential, I think you called it. But I, I, I think I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment on the on the power of things that don't make sense. 
intangibles? Well, it's also just the requirement that everything makes sense is limiting what we experiment with. Again, I think this is the way to end it. Um, thank you so much for the podcast, Mr. Sutherland. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your company, Gap Jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it. To learn more, visit gapjumpers.me. If you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, do please share this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil Podcast.